There are two universal languages in the world, it has been said, athletics and music. Both languages can be used with profit to gain the attention of our world and its citizens so that they might hear the message that we have to deliver. Some of the Christian Olympians in the recent 24th Olympiad had a large hearing because of their achievements in the Olympics, Carl Lewis being one of them. But this morning I want to speak about the other universal language, and that is music. God created music. He created music to glorify himself and to enrich our human experience. And God created man with a nature for music. He gives to us the ability to conceive it, to create it. He gives us the ability to hear it, to sing it, and to respond to it. God created us with a nature for music. Music has a potential of reaching more people, perhaps, than any other vehicle of communication that we have. The text that we are looking at today, Exodus 15, includes the first song lyrics recorded in Scripture. It is a song of redemption. Redemption that was by purchase and redemption that was by power. The purchase being the shed blood of the Passover lamb that was offered that last night in Egypt. The power being the power of God demonstrated when the Red Sea was parted for the deliverance of the people of Israel. After that glorious deliverance, the people of Israel rejoiced with the song that is recorded for us here, said to be sung to the Lord by Moses and the sons of Israel. Now, while music is universal to all people, it seems to me that only the redeemed of the Lord have this tune to sing. That is the song of redemption. What is the tune that is playing in your life this morning? As we look at our text, the entire chapter, we're going to see that there are really two tunes in the chapter, each different in nature, each distinctive. The first tune is actually a hymn. It's a hymn of worship. And let there be no question as to the direction of the hymn. It is directed toward God himself. The words, the Lord or my God, are used in this hymn, these 21 verses or so, some 15 times. In addition to that, personal pronouns referring to God number 35. So you have at least 50 references to God in these brief verses. This is a hymn of worship to God. There are three stanzas to the hymn. The first stanza is verses 1 through 6. Please keep in mind that Hebrew poetry is not written like our poetry. The Hebrew mind looked at poetry differently than we do. The repetition of thoughts was important to them. 
Often in our poems, we are progressive or logical. We start here and we work through a sequence of thoughts and we come to this point. In Oriental poetry, the thought is often circular. In other words, there is a follow-through on one thought and then there is a follow-through on the same thought again and again and again and again. So there's not necessarily progression in their poetry, but there is depth and emphasis to one particular truth. And we see that in these three stanzas. Stanza 1, verses 1 through 6, I've entitled, What God Did. And we see here His power to destroy His enemies. I will sing to the Lord, for He is highly exalted. The horse and its rider He has hurled into the sea. The Lord is my strength and song, and He has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise Him. My Father's God, and I will extol Him. The Lord is a warrior. The Lord is His name. Pharaoh's chariots and his army He has cast into the sea. And the choicest of his officers are drowned in the Red Sea. The deeps cover them. They went down into the depths like a stone. Thy right hand, O Lord, is majestic in power. Thy right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. The end of the first verse seems to be signaled by the repetition of that word and that phrase, rather. Thy right hand, O Lord, in verse 6. We notice in this first stanza that God's name is said to be warrior. We don't often consider that an appropriate title for God, do we? There seems to be an emphasis in our day on a God who is benign, a God who is peaceful, an image of gentleness and quietness. And that certainly is true about God, but there's more to be said about God than just that. God is also the Lord of hosts, the Lord of the armies. Unfortunately, this hymn that names him as a warrior would not be allowed in some denominational hymnals these days. For even onward Christian soldiers has been removed because of its military-like language. Here God is said to be a warrior. That is, God fights on behalf of his people. In fact, there will be no true peace in the world, will there, until our Lord Jesus Christ returns as a warrior, as depicted in the 19th chapter of the book of Revelation, and he destroys the armies of the world. And then when he has destroyed them as the Lord of hosts, he will reign upon his righteous throne throughout the millennial period, the thousand years, and there will be peace on the earth. But there is no peace today, nor can there be among men because of sin and unrighteousness. Satan is still free to roam the earth and causes lack of peace. Here we see God as a warrior acting on behalf of his people. That's what he did. He destroyed the armies of the Egyptians. Now verses 7 through 11. And notice again in verse 11 how we'll see a repetition of phrases. And the greatness of thine excellence, and in the greatness of thine excellence, thou dost overthrow those who rise up against thee. Thou dost send forth thy burning anger, and it consumes them as chaff. And at the blast of thy nostrils the waters were piled up. The flowing waters stood up like a heap. The deeps were congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy said, 
I will pursue, I will overtake, I will divide the spoil. My desire shall be gratified against them. I will draw out my sword. My hand shall destroy them. You get a picture here of those armies of Egypt coming and the swords are just twirling in the air. They can't wait to get up with the Israelites. Notice what God does. (laughs) Don't you love that? That poetic expression. Thou dost blow with thy wind. Just the breath of God took care of the enemy. The sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. Who is like thee among the gods, O Lord? Who is like thee? Majestic in holiness, awesome in praises and working wonders. And so here we see a description of God's mighty power in the language of a poet, of course. The third stanza, verses 12 through 16, the result of what God did. Thou didst stretch out thy right hand, the earth swallowed them. The first result, death to the army. As though the earth just opened up and they disappeared into its depths. Verse 13, in thy loving kindness thou hast led the people whom thou hast redeemed. In thy strength thou hast guided them to thy holy habitation. Second result of what God did is safety for his own. Death to the army, safety for God's own, the Israelites. And then beginning in verse 14, we see a third result, and it's warning to the nations. The peoples have heard. They tremble. Anguish has gripped the inhabitants of Philistia. Then the chiefs of Edom were dismayed. The leaders of Moab, trembling, grips them. All the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. Terror and dread fall upon them. By the greatness of thine arm, they are motionless as stone. They're just frozen with fright because of what happened at the Red Sea. Until thy people pass over, O Lord, until the people pass over whom thou hast purchased. Notice there again the repetition at the end of verse 3 in this hymn. And then there is a coda. Verses 17 and 18, which speaks of the promise, the assurance that belongs to God's people. Thou wilt bring them and plant them in the mountain of thine inheritance, the place, O Lord, which thou hast made for thy dwelling, the sanctuary, O Lord, which thy hands have established. The Lord shall reign forever and ever. And so we see a word here that God will eventually bring his people to Canaan, And to Mount Zion, as it's called later, to the city of Jerusalem, his habitation, and there he will reign over his people. Now verse 21 seems to have been a a response that the women of Israel may have given between each of these stanzas. Miriam led them, sing to the Lord, for he is highly exalted, the horse and his rider he has hurled into the sea. And as they were singing this, they were dancing around with their instruments, rejoicing in this worship service beside the Red Sea because of what God had done for them. My friend, music is the worship, the expression of praise within a redeemed soul. One who has not been redeemed by the blood And by the power of the resurrection, cannot enter into words like these. 
praise to God. For worship, a hymn of praise, is the expression of one who has been saved, who is redeemed. And it comes naturally. We may not all be able to write the words, but when we sing them, we feel them, we enter into them, because we understand the meaning. When our missionaries, the Linetis, arrived back on their station in Indonesia in January, before they could get out of the airplane, right there at the end of that landing strip in the jungle, the uh, Taliabu people surrounded the plane. You recall that they had preached the gospel to them the previous July, and many of them had responded by faith in Christ. And during the the months of their absence, others had come to faith in Christ. They were being built up through the teaching of another missionary couple there. Before they would allow them to get out of the plane, they, they had to sing to them a hymn that they had written. Not one that had been translated from our language into theirs, but one that they had written out of their own hearts and in the midst of their own culture. I can't possibly reproduce for you the, the singing because I don't know what the tune was like or what the sounds were like. But I can give you the words as translated into the English. Here's what they sang. We give our respect to the Father. Our shelter is in the Father. Our hope is in the Father. We comfort the news bearers, the missionaries. We console the news bearers. Because of the Father... Life was brought to us. Because of the Father, light was brought to us. We are truly joyful. I love this last sentence. We are happy from our insides out. (laughs) Isn't that great? We are happy from our insides out. That's what a hymn of praise is all about. Is there music like that in your life today? Name the tune in your life. Is that what's playing? Around what is your life dancing today? Is it your salvation? A believer whose mind is in the Word of God and who is living under the Lordship of Jesus Christ cannot help but sing, according to Colossians 3.16 and Ephesians 5.19. It is impossible not to enjoy music and to be musical to some degree, though we have a spectrum of appreciation. When one is filled with the Holy Spirit, music is the expression of worship. That's not only true of us individually, but it's vital, it's important, it's true of us as a church as well. Music ministry in a church is absolutely essential and vital. But it's not an easy one for a couple of reasons. In the first place, there is high expectation of a music ministry in the day in which we live. And that's because nearly everyone has records that are professionally produced. Many of us have at least one Christian radio station that we can tune into every day of the week. And when we come to church, we just naturally expect to hear the same quality of music that we hear professionally produced. And that's not always possible. I believe that every church should do the best it can. 
I thank God for the talented musicians in our church. A larger church has that potential to draw from. A smaller church doesn't. When I go home to Kansas and visit uh, a worship service there, I rejoice in the fellowship of those people. But when the 11 or 12 people get up to sing, I have to work, work at it to enjoy it. I do, because I know them. But it's not exactly like listening to the Hawaiians, believe me. Maybe the Hawaiians at a slower speed or something like that, I don't know. We have high expectations of music. We need, we need to do the best we can with our music. I don't believe that everybody who gets up here and sings has to be professional. I don't mean that, but I, I do mean this, that there is no particular blessing in, in God's Word for mediocrity either. We ought to present to the Lord our very best in music. There's a second reason that the ministry of music is not easy, and that's because of the variety of tastes that exist among the Lord's people. Not everybody has an appreciation for good music like I do. Not everybody likes bluegrass. My wife and I go round and round about that. She was born in the land of bluegrass. How she can possibly not like the sound of it is beyond me. But I accept that because I love her. Boy, when I hear some good bluegrass music, it just gets to me. I love it. I was down at the fair, that pavilion beside the DNR area. Just at the right time, one afternoon, I had a whole half hour of some really good bluegrass music. I enjoyed that. And I enjoy the old country music, not this modern music, <clears throat> but the, the old stuff, the old country music that, that uh, you hear occasionally, like on the Grand Ole Opry. But not everybody has that taste, and I understand that. There are those who prefer Bach and Beethoven. And... <laughs> no, I really do know how to pronounce it. And I enjoy some of that too, frankly. I really do. But we have to acknowledge the fact that among us there is a broad variety of tastes and it's difficult in any church to please everybody all the time. And not only is it difficult, it's impossible. One thing we have to keep in mind about taste in music is that our taste is often heavily influenced by the world, which is Satan's order. I guess my feeling is that church music ought to sound more like heaven than the other place. It ought to sound more like God's domain than the domain of Satan. Now, I recognize that that, that can be interpreted variously, but uh, that's just kind of a general thought concerning taste in music, I guess. It's interesting that in ancient Israel, there was a real emphasis on music and public worship. Music, musicians, rather, were set apart even by their birth. And they were trained to give their whole lifetime to the pursuit of music and to performance of music in public worship. You can read about that in First Chronicles 25, for example. In fact, uh, when David established the order of the musicians, there were over 4,000 of them 
who were supported by the tithes, the taxes of the nation, so that they could uh, use their music gifts within the worship of the people of Israel as they came to the tabernacle and to the temple later. There was emphasis, too, there upon skill and upon the training of its leaders. In fact, there were 288, if I recall correctly, who seemed to have been teachers in the established schools of music there in the temple so that they would be training musicians constantly for the public worship of the church. First Baptist Church in Atlanta has a school of music uh, within its ministry. They're not only training musicians for their own church, but through that they are training musicians for other churches throughout the Atlanta area. It's a great idea. Sometimes I get a little weary with the attitudes of some people toward the music ministry of a church. We ought never to begrudge money that is budgeted and invested toward worship. I recognize that a lot of us have different priorities. Some have missions as the priority. Others have our children's ministry as a priority. Some have local evangelism. Some have paying off building debt. Others have other priorities. The fact is, though, that worship is one of those. We ought never to begrudge or cheat on the money that we invest in the worship ministry of our church. You look at the emphasis on that in the Old Testament, and you cannot come away with any impression except that it is a high priority to God. That what we do in worship be quality and that it be pleasing to Him, that it be done with the right heart and motive. Music is as vital to our worship of God as, well, peanuts are to peanut butter. Whereas the alphabet is to a newspaper. It's just worship is a part, uh, music rather is a part of our worship. And by the way, we are commanded in the Bible to sing. We read that this morning. Did you know that? To fail to participate in singing in a worship service is to sin against God. Now I recognize occasionally we have sore throats or there are other reasons that we may not sing a particular verse or hymn, but to habitually and persistently refuse to sing indicates a heart that is somehow out of touch with God. Furthermore, to be careless about what we say as we sing is to flirt with hypocrisy. And to be in danger of making vows that we don't intend to keep. If you look at some of the words that we sing and what they mean, it would cause all of us to be sobered. We ought never to enter into a service and just to sing because we know the words. But we ought to sing with the words coming fresh to our minds. What am I saying? What am I singing to God? It is sinful to do less than that. It is sinful. And I want to emphasize again this week, and I recognize this is the second Sunday in a row I've said something about it. One, two. can count that far. It's important to be in the service on time. Please do not stand in the hallways and talk when the service is beginning. 
I urge you who are in small church in the 8.15 hour to get out on time to be here by 9.30. Because the worship of God begins at that hour with us as a congregation. The first hymn is not the processional. Now I recognize that there are reasons for people to be late into a service. We can't be legalistic about that, but the point is too many of us come in late. We need to be in our places and with our hearts prepared. We need to have that hymnal open or be reading that scripture so that we're ready to enter into that service because we are here in the presence of God to worship Him. And then that worship that we experience together is really little more than the outflow, the overflow of our hearts from our worship all week long. If somehow we have been out of touch with God all week and we have not been worshiping Him through the week, we can almost be guaranteed a dry worship service that Sunday. We'll not get much out of it. Because you see, when we come together corporately, it's the overflow of what we do privately and individually. Here we see the people of Israel dancing and singing with joy and praise to God because of their deliverance, a hymn of worship. Then they went on. God led them on to a place called Merah. The second tune that we see in our text today is the blues of complaint. Not a hymn of worship. We come now to what Vernon McGee calls the desert blues. Moses led Israel from the Red Sea and they went out into the wilderness of Shur. I think what happened was... He said, are you ready to go? And they said, sure. So they went on out. And they went three days into the wilderness and found no water. And when they came to Merah, they could not drink the waters of Merah, for they were bitter. Therefore it was named Merah. So the people grumbled at Moses, saying, what shall we drink? This was really a double trial to test the people of Israel. In the first place, there was no water for three days. When they got to the oasis in the desert, the water was brackish. It was bitter. They were not able to drink it. God put them through this double trial that he might expose their hearts. God wanted to know whether the worship three days earlier had been genuine. Did they really believe what they said in the songs? Or were they just caught up in the emotion of the moment? They had been delivered from slavery in Egypt, but we see here that they had not been delivered from the spirit of Egypt. For the corruption and the unbelief of their hearts was manifested in this trial. Beloved, God leads us to tests as well, doesn't he? To the wilderness to bitter experiences. You see, I mean, God leads us there. That's right. David said, the righteous God tries the hearts and minds. God led the people of Israel through three days without water and then to water that could not be drunk. God leads us to test that he might expose the true content of our hearts. Do we really believe what we say we believe? 
Well, the answer to that is usually found in the midst of a test. What is it that causes a redeemed person to lose his tune of praise and adopt the blues? Well, someone says it's just human nature, isn't it, to complain? Well, of course, that's true. It is just human nature to grumble, to murmur, and to complain about things. But the question we have to ask is this, is the human nature to rule over the divine nature? If we are saved, we are made partakers of the divine nature. We who are partakers of God's nature, should we excuse our complaining and our grumbling with such a cheap and sinful response as saying it's only human? Had the people here forgotten the good purpose of God or God's promises? Did they think that God had forgotten to be gracious to them? Have we at times forgotten that? In the maras of our life, in the deserts that we go through? Rather, when those tests come, we ought to say, as did Job, even before the day of Moses, the Lord has given, now the Lord has taken away, but blessed be the name of the Lord. God leads us to Merah as well, so that we can there learn the power of His grace to sweeten our lives in the midst of bitterness. Moses cried out to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a tree, and he threw it into the waters, and the waters became sweet. There he, God, made for them a statute and regulation, and there he tested them. And he said, If you will give earnest heed to the voice of the Lord your God, and do what is right in his sight, and give ear to his commandments, and keep all his statutes... I will put none of the diseases on you which I have put on the Egyptians, for I am Jehovah Rapha. I am the Lord, your healer. When our experiences become bitter, God can make them sweet, as he does here for the people of Israel. We too should take the issue to God in prayer. Not be complaining or grumbling or murmuring, but to pray. And then to be sure that God's provision is near. And our need really is only for God to open our eyes that we might see his provision. For with the bitter water, God will always give the healing tree close at hand. And then does not this healing tree remind us of Jesus Christ? who himself was cut down, was slain for the sake of sinners. His sacrifice on the cross for us sweetens the bitterness of our lives because of sin, and we are saved from that. It is worthy to note here, perhaps, that the grumbling was directed against Moses. Isn't that interesting? As Spurgeon pointed out in one of his messages, how like us to be angry with God and to deny it 
by doubling our complaint at Moses. We are like the dog who is beaten by its master but bites at the stick. Whatever the instrument may be that the sovereign God has used to bring us low to our place of testing, what we need to do is be honest to admit that God is bigger than whatever instrument he has employed. And that if there is anger or complaint or murmuring or bitterness, it's really against God and not the instrument he has used. We need to learn from these people to be done with a complaining tongue, to discipline the murmuring, gossiping attitude and spirit, and to recognize those words for what they are, sin. And we need often to recognize the root is that of unbelief, as is the case here, for they did not believe that God was able to deliver them from these circumstances. Remember, these are the same people that were praising God beside the Red Sea three days before. But before we jump on them with too much harshness, we have to consider our own tendencies, don't we? Here we all look into the mirror that God polishes for us in his word at Merah. And having seen the human tendency... Let's not deceive ourselves and just go away having looked into the mirror to forget what we have observed. In fact, we can say blessed are those who experience meras in life, who go through the afflictions, sorrows, disappointments, and heartaches that life entails. You say, what do you mean blessed are they that have meras? Rather, blessed are they that avoid them. Had there been no Mera, how would they have learned God's grace to bring healing to bitter waters? To have no Meras is to miss the personal, experiential knowledge of God's marvelous grace. To have no Meras is to be without sympathy for the fellow pilgrim who faces his. To have no meras is to have no ability to encourage another who suffers and who is laid low in the trial of God. Yes, rather, count it all joy when you fall into various kinds of meras. God wants to bring blessing to our lives. That is the attitude, the loving attitude of God for all of us. Sometimes God brings blessing to us by a a miracle at the Red Sea. And sometimes God brings blessing to us by taking us through a dry desert to a bitter spring. Whichever way God designs to bring the blessing, the principle is the same. That obedience brings blessing And disobedience brings discipline. That's what he says basically in verse 26. But isn't God good? Even when you and I come to our trials, to our meras, and we fail, he is there 
to graciously provide anyway. That's what he did for the people of Israel. And it may be that you are passing through one of those wilderness experiences this morning or that you have come to a bitter, nasty, brackish, distasteful experience in your life. I want you to know that the Lord is near and that if you will simply pray to Him, He will open your eyes that you might see His provision near at hand which, if you will appropriate it, will sweeten those waters that you cannot now possibly drink, so you think. God's provision is near you this morning. Open your eyes to see it. Indeed, open your eyes to see Him who on the tree, the cross, bore our sins and our sorrows. That cross of Jesus Christ is available today to sweeten the waters of your present experience. But what you need to do, as it were, is to cut it down and throw it into the waters. You need to apply it to yourself. Will you do that? Name the tune that's in your life today. Is it a hymn of worship? Or is it the blues of complaint? Or is it some other tune? Whatever the tune is, my prayer is that we're playing from God's music. Let's bow together. Listen real close to the tune that's in your life this morning. Is that a tune that is honoring God? Is it a tune of joyful worship and praise? Or is it a tune of compromise and disobedience? Or is it a, a tune of complaint and bitterness? Will you bring that tune to the Lord? Will you allow Him to restore you to himself by an honest confession of your sin, by an appropriation of the cross of Jesus Christ, if you're a child of God, to bring to him those experiences that have caused you to be angry or hurt and to sacrifice them at the cross for Jesus' sake. There is no sorrow like his that he bore for you. He's able to identify with all you're passing through at this time. Bring them to him today. If you're not a Christian, your need is to bring the song of sin with all of its discord and disharmony to him, to Christ, to recognize that he died for you and rose again that he might save you and be the Lord of your life and bring a new song to you, the song of redemption. Will you do that? Sing with me this chorus, will you? 
Everybody sing praise to the Lord. Everybody sing praise to the Lord. Everybody sing praise to wonderful at Merah as much as at the Red Sea. Open your eyes, friends. See him today. Sing with me again. Open our eyes, Lord. We want to see Jesus to reach out Open your eyes today and see him as that tree that God has provided right there at your mirror. Won't you give that experience to him and let him sweeten it in your life? Father, I pray today, whatever the tune may be, that it's music you've written, that we're not playing the world's tunes, that we're not in the devil's chorus but that our song is one of praise and worship and gratitude to you for whatever circumstances we're in today. Help us to appreciate the tests that you take us through. And thank you for your grace so that when we do fail them, you're there to pick us up and to give us a new beginning to take us on. Some of us are at that place today. Thank you for your faithfulness to take us on anew in our journey with you. And thank you for this time of worship this morning. We love you. And we want our lives to be a melody of thanksgiving and praise every day to your worthy name. Amen.